0: Greetings to our global neighbors and all the ships at sea. From coast to coast, border to border, this is Message Traffic from Washington, D.C., presented by the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs.
1: This is Valentina Doran, a Foreign Policy Fellow at NYCFPA. This week, on message traffic, we
2: will be discussing the unique relationship between the United Arab Emirates and United States
1: governments. This audio was taken from our webinar that was held last Friday, March 4th. Here is our episode.
0: Good day. I'm Justin Russell. I am the Principal Director of the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs, based here in Washington, D.C. Uh, we This is the latest in our, our webinar series. Today, we're going to talk about the unique relationship between the United Arab Emirates and the United States. Quite frankly, the relationship between the United States and the United Arab Emirates is a unique one. In many foreign policy circles, the relationship is at best referred to as unique or complicated. At worst, it is referred to as codependent. Either way, the relationship continues to be a focal point in the foreign policy of the United States, for better or for worse. In recent years, there's been pressure on this key strategic relationship. On one hand, the number of cases citing human rights abuses perpetrated by the Emiratis continues to grow, and their documented aggression in the region, namely in Yemen and Libya, continues to draw international furor. On the other hand, the recent Abrams Accords puts them in the spotlight by enhancing a peaceful recognition and dialogue between the UAE and Israel. While the U.S. continues to consider the UAE its strongest partner on the Arabian Peninsula, the relationship between the Emiratis, Russians, and China is growing closer and stronger every day. So where does that put this relationship? Is the relationship sustainable? Is the relationship a strength or a liability to Washington? What will the future, what will the relationship look like in the future? Well, we're going to talk about this complicated relationship in our discussion today. But first, allow me to introduce our distinguished panel. Uh, First off, we have uh, Reid Jarar. Reid is is an Arab-American political advocate based in Washington, D.C. He, since immigrating to the U.S. in 2005, he's worked as a lobbyist on political issues pertaining to U.S. engagement in the Arab world. He is widely recognized as an expert on political, social, and economic developments in the MENA region. He has testified in numerous congressional hearings and briefings and is a frequent guest on national and international media outlets in both Arabic and English, including CNN, MSNBC, NPR, etc. He has been published in the New York Times and quoted in numerous numerous media outlets – Raid was raised in countries all across the Middle East. He's a graduate of the University of Baghdad, where he received his bachelor's degree, uh, and the University of Jordan, where he received his master's degree, both in architecture and engineering. He's on the uh, advisory board of the organization Air Wars and comes to us today representing democracy in the Arab world now. Raid, thank you so much for joining us, my friend.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, next up here, Jordan Cohen. Jordan is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute and a PhD candidate in political science at George Mason University. His work focuses on issues related to weapons transfer alliances, Middle East politics, and military budget. Jordan is an emerging expert at the Forum on the Arms Trade and is the co author on the Cato Institute's Arms Sales Risk Index. He's published over 20 op-eds, three think tank reports, two peer-reviewed journal articles, two peer-reviewed book reviews, and has given multiple media interviews. This includes placements at the War on the Rocks, NBC News, The Hill, uh, Yahoo News, and a series of publications at Defense One and similar uh, defense analysis outlets. His work has been cited in several media outlets, including Washington Quarterly, the the American Academic of Pediatrics, the academic journal regarding on how to mitigate child casualties and conflict, as well as various other think tanks and think tank reports. His work has also been cited by Senator Ben Cardin in the announcement of the Enhancing Human Rights and Arms Sales Act of 2019. Uh, Jordan has... Wide-ranging regional experience, specifically in the Middle East. He owns a professional competency in Arabic and has published on the relationship between oil and regime stability in the U.S., or in the Middle East. In his free time, Jordan is a fan of Chelsea Football Club, Go Blue, and Cleveland Sports. Well, okay, that kind of works. Uh, including hosting a podcast about the Cleveland Browns. Wow, that's an offline discussion we got to have, Jordan. Uh he currently holds a uh, master's in Middle East and Islamic Studies for George Mason, and holds a bachelor's in history from High Point University. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us, Jordan.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having
0: me on. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, so let's let's start off with the basics here. You know, we you heard me talk about the relationship with the United Arab Emirates being complicated. Ray, let me start off with you and and say, you know, how did we get to this point in uh, U.S.-Emirati relations? And exactly in your opinion, how complicated
1: is it? It's complicated, as much as many other complicated relationships, I, I think the unfortunately the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and North Africa is complicated in as much as it's failed and incoherent and contradictory. Uh, you know, I think many of us have criticized the United States um, foreign policy in the Middle East and North Africa region for a long time now, whether it was uh, the U.S. engagement with um, countries like Egypt uh, or, uh, or Israel or, or uh, countries in the Gulf region, um, and the relationship with the UAE in that sense is not unique to it being um, a contradictory and unclear kind of a relationship where the United States flip flops, uh, where the U.S. supports a country um, in many cases, against the U.S. Uh, on interest or or regulations or laws, uh, we've seen this happening with Saudi Arabia, with uh, Bahrain, uh, with other countries in the region. So, with UAE, like honestly, the last couple of weeks have been also um, very clear, um, <laughs> like give gave us a clear example of how the U.S. relationship with UAE is a failed relationship. And the word complicated is really masking what is more of a failure of an incoherent relationship that is on autopilot. Uh, We saw that the U.S. pushed very, very hard for uh, a top uh, um, top priority issue regarding Ukraine. And UAE just happened to be in the Security Council as uh, one of the members in, in this period. And the UAE did not take the United States' side in um, the initial two or three votes, uh, everyone around the world was shocked at, at how could this happen? Like how could the US and UAE be involved in um, arms deals amounting to tens of billions of dollars? How could the US be this engaged politically and supportive? And then when this critical moment uh, of an international conflict, conflict breaks, There is no coherence in coordination with the UAE. This was just an example of how the U.S. relationship with the UAE is failed. We have seen many other examples throughout the years, especially, uh, you know, in the war on Yemen, uh, where the United United Arab Emirates uh, intervention has not been um, in uh, coordination with the U.S. It has not been and within the U.S. Uh, interest, it was and, and the U.S. continues to support UAE and sell weapons to, to the United Arab Emirates despite that.
0: All right. Jordan, the same question to you is uh, how do you view the complicated relationship between uh, Washington and the Emiratis? And how, in your view, did we get here?
2: Yeah. So uh, just to kind of further that. When people talk about weapon sales and alliances, partnerships, there's a lot of conversation that, oh, this gives the United States leverage over these countries. I actually think the opposite is true. Uh, And looking specifically at the case of the UAE, if anything, it seems like the UAE is the one that has leverage over the United States. And this relationship with the UAE goes back a very, very long way. But I mean, what's happening right now is connected to the global war on terror just as much as it is to anything else. Well, one of the big reasons and one of the big types of weapons systems we're sending the UAE are these weapons, these missiles that are designed to let the UAE conduct over the horizon operations in Afghanistan. The connections are run deep. The reason the U.S. agreed to send $65 million more in weapons is because they intercepted airstrike from Yemen going into the UAE. It's all connected.
0: So, so along those lines, though, Jordan, is, you know, we, we, we still hear the commentary that the UAE is our strongest ally in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. That being the case... It, are they truly acting like our strongest ally in the Arabian Peninsula, or is it, in fact, a situation where the, the Emiratis are, in fact, you know, they look out for themselves and what's in the best interest of the Emiratis?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the latter, right? And, and to a certain degree, I mean, given the U.S. collection of allies in the Arabian Peninsula, they may actually be the, the most loyal, but that's not saying much, right? I mean, that's, that's coming in. 214th place and 215 person race and it, it, at the end of the day they are not looking out for us interest again if anything they use us interest against the united states so like a big example is oh well turns out UAE weapons us has given the uae are falling into the hands of al-qaeda linked organizations so then the uae says well we need more more like radar capability more tracking capability to make sure that doesn't happen and then the U.S. sends millions of dollars of radar and stuff, and it keeps happening. And
0: and, 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 and just for clarification for the viewers, uh, we I, I should disclose the fact uh, the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs is, in fact, a plaintiff in a federal court case trying to block the sale of the uh, F-35s and other armaments to the United Nations. It is still before all right, I'm sorry, to the United Arab Emirates. It is still before a federal judge in Washington, D.C., so I do want to make that perfectly clear that we are, in fact, you know, we we do have a case before a federal judge on that. Um, but, Ray, you know, here's the thing is, um, is you know, going back to what Jordan was saying is that uh, it it strikes me that the advantage that the UAE, for some reason, has this, underlying control over middle east foreign policy uh both over the white house both over the state department and even with the department of defense uh is this a uh is this a marriage of convenience is this a marriage of necessity or is this the relationship that this is the one that for lack of a better term sucks less if you will
1: and I think it's unfortunately, it's all the above, uh, like most of the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and North Africa, including that with UAE, uh, is on autopilot. And, and, and many, many of, of the think tanks and nonprofits in D.C. have been criticizing uh, what appears to be a, a, a policy that is just happening for the sake of happening. Uh, like the, uh, we give um, Egypt $1.3 billion a year and give Israel $3.8 billion a year because of some arrangements um, stemming from the 1970s. Um, and many think tanks in D.C., including, um, you know, like the brand com- corporation that is like a, more of a like a centrist corporation, uh, put a really good report last year saying we really need to rethink uh, and shift the United States engagement in the Middle East. I think with the UAE, it's it's a combination of many of the factors that you mentioned. Uh, some of it has to do with the flow of arms and the military industrial complex, just selling billions of dollars and the, the whole economic angle behind that. You know, members of Congress and corporations saying this is good for jobs. It's good for money. We're making money out of this. So that's just like the unrestricted flow of arms is one part. Uh, the other part is... Um, the whole situation with um, Iran and uh, many um, members of Congress and policymakers view, uh, you know, UAE and, and Saudi Arabia as uh, like a, a part of that proxy uh, war against or, or like um, tension with Iran in the region uh, because UAE is more uh, like closer to the United States and now closer to to Israel uh, because of U.S. pressure. Um, so there, there are like a lot of um, you know, bigger picture excuses for that. But when you you look at the actual relationship, why is the United States allying itself with a, a, with a government that is committing human rights abuses at home and committing war crimes in Yemen and Libya, uh, supporting dictatorships around the region, supporting counter revolutions, um, around the Arab world. Why is the United States affiliating itself with that? There is no answer. Uh, The the, the real answer is that the United States is only giving a blind eye to that, like we're not looking at it. There is, uh, you know, intentionally not um, recognizing that the the UAE policies in the region are in contradiction to the U.S. stated policies.
0: Well, uh, Jordan, that that brings up a huge point to us, Uh, you know, when we look at the UAE, We, you know, we've seen the documented use of arms uh, in Yemen, in Libya, and the violations of the continuous violations of human rights. But for the month of March, ironically, at the chair of the United Nations Security Council is, in fact, the United Arab Emirates. Is, is, Is there a weird dichotomy involved in this, seeing that? uh the uae isn't so much worried about global peace and global security as it is about maintaining its um
2: its power over the gcc yeah i mean the unfortunate bit too is i don't think the us is that concerned about it right and you can look well, at why why is that let's just get down to the root of it why is that yeah no i mean it's a, it's a great question i think because no matter how much u.s politicians and u.s businesses et cetera, et cetera, want to say that they really evaluate human rights or it's whatever in, in their analysis at the end of the day I, I think one of the only real positive things about henry kissinger was he came out and said like we're not interested in that right we're interested in stability and i i hazard to think that it I, I really do believe that that's true. I don't think the U.S. actually cares about human rights. And I think the reason we know that is just look at all the weapons U.S. is sending to everywhere, whether it's the Northern Triangle, the Gulf, knowing what these weapons are going to be used for. And it's a never-ending cycle. We don't stop doing it. And it's unfortunate.
0: And, and You know, we, it, it almost seems like that – the American electorate is also falling prey to this wide global marketing extravaganza that is the UAE. Americans continue to look at Dubai and Abu Dhabi as these luxurious places where everybody is treated equal in luxury. Uh, Nobody realizes the, the true hurt that comes out of those places when it comes to uh, human rights abuses involving sex trade, involving uh, indentured servitude, uh, you know the the mistreatment of uh, of, of uh, transitional employer, employees. Why is it that we are allowing a marketing campaign? to kind of defeat what is truly good in the world, and that is the the, the rightful human rights of people in the region.
1: These are very legitimate questions. And, uh, like, looking at the human rights abuses inside of um, UAE, uh, they're one of the best-kept secrets in in D.C. Uh, Like, UAE is a small country of only 1 million citizens, uh, but there are 8 million migrant workers who work there, uh, often in uh, abusive conditions. Uh, There are abusive laws for keeping them there, abusive conditions for how they live, um, and very serious human rights violations um, that happen on a daily basis. Um, They mostly fly under the radar uh, because the United States government uh, doesn't amplify them, uh, we we don't really hear that much about them. So you're right. Like when you when you think about uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi and uh, the fancy malls, and uh, it, there is this um, uh, fascination with uh, with viewing uh, Dubai through these like tourism lenses, without digging uh, deeper to see what's going on uh, under everyone's um, you know uh, under the radar there. Um, I think it's it's not uh, very uh, surprising to see this. There is a pattern out there where uh, the United States government uh, tends to criticize human rights abuses in countries that we don't like. You know, if if these kind of abuses were happening in in Iran or in China or in in Russia, uh, we would have heard about them more than the abuses happening in. In Israel, or in Egypt, or Saudi Arabia, or UAE, or other abusive governments, so so like it it go it is it, there is a bigger foreign policy problem that we're dealing with, and I think the the issues that we are pointing out were in the case of UAE is a manifestation of that issue. But here's what we can say: if you look at the human rights reports uh, by uh, most human rights organizations, international, uh, global. Uh, human rights organizations, uh, whether it's Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or uh, uh, other human rights authorities out there, uh, there are very clear, um, uh, you know, indications, very clear documented cases of serious human rights violations, systemic human rights violations that happen internally uh, in UAE. Even uh, my organization, Dawn, uh, we have documented some of these violations. We have highlighted a few cases, uh, of unjust prosecutions in, in, in the uh, United Arab Emirates, um, some cases of uh, of culprits, um, and I encourage your viewers to go to our website um, dawnmina.org uh, to view some of these cases. Uh, so like they have been documented. And I think that the, the, the war crimes that the UAE is committing in Yemen and in, in um, Libya, they are very extremely serious. I mean, the UAE literally occupies entire islands, entire parts of Yemen, uh, you know, supports some, some factions against other factions, um, in many cases against the U.S. stated policies in Yemen. Bombs, destroys, uh, you know, it's, it's unbelievable the intervention right. in Yemen is really out right. of control. And the fact that they also have a direct intervention to support um, Sisi and the, the uh, dictatorship in Egypt by bombing Libya, uh, to uh, and interventions in in Tunis and Tunisia. I mean, it's unbelievable. Like to, right. UAE for in the Arab world has become a symbol of uh, supporting counter uh, revolutionary anti democratic um, uh, forces around the Arab world. Uh, and the United States has not criticized these actions, not even once over the last decade.
0: And in <clears throat> Jordan, you know that being the case, uh, and and re- I want to come back to that point. But th- there's one thing that that all of these war criminal, um, the or rather the alleged war crimes being undertaken by the UAE, um, Jordan. When we talk about this, is the concern that you know, if we don't have the UAE uh, as an ally, this could put into jeopardy certain strategic plans. Let's say from the Biden administration, such as reinstating the JCPOA, uh, the Iranian deal. Is 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 this a factor,
2: or are we overreading on this? I mean, I I, I would hazard to say I think any relations with UAE, UAE may make something like the JCPOA more difficult, right? Because I mean, Iran buys weapons from Russia in response to when the US sends weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I I think that the strategic narrative is just based on decades and decades of the US, and and this goes beyond the global war on terror, goes through the Cold War of the US Adopting this kind of very primacist grand strategy, where they don't feel that, like this idea that we have left the Middle East uh, is absurd. It, if anything, leaving Afghanistan increased our presence everywhere else across across the region. And, and so it just it, it's decades of this same foreign policy. That as much as Biden talked a good game and continues to do so, he hasn't really changed much, especially when it comes to sending weapons and relationships.
0: But I guess is the fear is that, you know, this is almost kind of godfather Ask Jordan, where we say, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh, if we Is the fear that if we don't uh, continue to keep that military relationship with the Emiratis in place, that they will, in fact, go into the arms of manufacturers such as, let's say, Russia?
2: I mean, I if that is the logic, then these countries are less intelligent than I think we're giving them credit for. Uh, transitioning, to you know, Russian weaponry would be exceedingly difficult. It would be exceedingly costy, costly. And I think the U.S. knows that. And I think the UAE knows that, right? These countries know that U.S. weapons give them the best ability to do what they want to do, and they're willing to pay the premium for it. And I, I mean, when... I've looked at the history of U.S. weapon sales and, like, when those sales reduce or end uh, basically since the glo- beginning of the global war on terror, and the answer is as long as these countries are willing to pay money for these giant weapon systems, the U.S. is going to be willing to sell. When the country stop being willing to pay the money, then then the U.S. stops, but, but as long as the U.S. is willing to pay. But, but you know, Reid, we, we, we've we seen this he, he, as recently
0: as the recent Dubai air show where we saw The Emiratis and the Emirati regime snuggling up to Chinese arms manufacturers, Russian arms manufacturers, and U.S. arms manufacturers. We've always heard that the uh, the reason why we want to keep this relationship with the UAE is because they uh, they're loyal to our cause, they're loyal to our brand, and they recognize the quality. Um, is, Is is are we being are we being sold a bill of goods when it comes to the depth of the relationship especially when it comes from a national strategic angle
1: yeah, i mean i have to say that in in, in this country uh, and i can't speak to russia and, and china and other countries but in this country we do have uh, very clear regulations for who we can sell weapons to uh, there are uh, clear U.S. laws and regulations and policies that prohibits the United States government from selling uh, weapons to uh, human rights abusers or to any country that will use the weapons to commit um, war crimes. So we have two like main bodies of of, of law. One of them is the Foreign Assistance Act. Uh, it has many amendments. It's been there for decades. And it it applies to when the U.S. um, you know mostly uh, gives other countries uh, uh, military aid, right? And there is the Arms Export Control Act that applies to when we sell weapons to other countries, and there are a few other smaller presidential policies and executive director. Um, the U.S. is technically a uh, signatory to the arms uh, transfer treaty, the ATT, but it has not been ratified yet, so it's not in, in effect. Uh, but you would think that the administration would follow the, the spirit of it as well, because uh, the Obama administration is the one who signed the, the, the treaty. So there are guidelines there, and um, it's true that there are like many arguments that could be made for why. Um, weapon manufacturers would like to sell more weapons. I mean, I believe that. I think all weapon manufacturers would like to sell more weapons to anyone. Uh, But I think, like, there is the political argument for why, you know, the United States should or should not sell weapons to some governments. And then there is the legal argument. Um, And I think the New York Center is is using both of these arguments in your lawsuit, which is, you know, we shouldn't be selling these weapons to the UAE uh, not only because of the political analysis that we have, which is uh, this is not a good idea to support this this government uh, by giving them legitimacy, but also because of the legal restraints that we have there. Um, now that said, I, I do want to like uh, emphasize a point that, that was made uh, earlier by you, Justin, which like the, the point about the interoperability like the interoperation of, of different weapons right. between the U.S. and other countries. And it, it's actually a myth that, like, if we didn't sell the UAE, uh, like, one more F-22, that they're going to, like, turn to the other side and get, uh, like, a Russian Sohoi and stuff. It doesn't work that way. Uh, like, these things take decades of right. training and switching weapons. And it's, it's a much more complex situation. And it is... That that language is usually used to justify impulsive, uh, you know, selling that uh, contradicts to the US policies and laws. Say so if we didn't sell it, the Russians would sell it, or China would, would sell it. I personally think the answer is, let them. So what? Like that's that's for me. That's not like really an issue. Like if if the if if the conversation that we're having is that we have an abusive government that is committing very serious violations. Uh, domestically and, and war crimes in the region, that we shouldn't sell them weapons. That's the end of the conversation. Are they gonna buy their weapons from another country? Are they gonna coordinate with uh, someone else to commit their war crimes? Let them do it. I don't understand why is that a part of of us stepping in to sell it. But I'm saying like, I understand that the conversation in DC is more complex. And for that conversations, we step in to say, you know, we need more safeguards, we need more systems of transparency, and we need better end-use monitoring to make, make sure that U.S. weapons will not be used to committing these violations. And at the same time, even for those who want to sell weapons and transfer weapons to Egypt and UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel, for the U.S. to at least use some leverage uh, if, they are, if we are actually selling these weapons. It's the worst of both worlds right. now, because we dump hundreds of billions of dollars worth of weapons for uh, Saudi Arabia and, and um, UAE and, and Egypt with with almost zero leverage. Uh, I mean, this week's events at the Security Council is an example of a failed U.S. policy. The United States is unable to get the UAE to agree to the most basic principles of international law while the UAE is in the Security Council. Uh, to stop an armed invasion of a, of a member of the of the of the UN, it's unbelievable how how little the United States has of leverage uh, over these countries that has been you know covering up for, for and justifying supporting for decades. You know, you know,
0: Jordan, you know, Reid brings up a really good point. You know, we we talk about the special relationship between the Emiratis and Washington. Yet, as Reid pointed out, uh, they abstained along with other non-friendly, let's say, U.S. actors or non-supportive U.S. actors in the, uh, in the General Assembly's emergency resolution on Ukraine. Uh, we have seen a stronger relationship between Moscow and uh, Abu Dhabi and Moscow and Dubai continuing to grow. Um, At the same time, we see the human rights violations. Uh, We – even the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs back in 2020, we broke the report that said that the uh, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, and Department of Treasury were in fact investigating the UAE Central Bank for money laundering to allow people to do work in Iran – Contrary to our own sanctions, contrary to our own laws, and yet we continue to reward this. I guess the big question is, um, what has to happen for us to hold the Emiratis accountable for all these actions? And, you know, we we've tried carrot. When do they see a
2: stick or will they? Yeah, I mean, mean, this idea that U.S. weapons gives the U.S. weapon, or sorry, U.S. weapons sales gives U.S. leverage over these countries, I mean, at this point, to me, seems a little bit like Bigfoot. Like, we keep, that is said over and over in D.C. policy circles, whether it's talking about Saudi Arabia or the UAE or what have you. And and the reality is, it doesn't, we don't do it. We haven't done it for 20 years. If we were using these weapons to leverage somewhere across the world, we should see these weapons leading to more democratic freedoms, less human rights abuses, and we don't do it. We don't see it, and largely it's because the F-35 isn't there to make peace, right? The F-16 isn't to make peace. It's it's to kill. And when the U.S. agrees to these contracts, it is very politicians feel bound to continue the sale because of the potential loss of money if they cancel halfway through. Congress doesn't have the legs right now because of the presidential veto present in the Arms Export Control Act. They they don't have the legs. I, I mean, I I think we are all aware there are many Congress people that do not like these sales that issue uh, RFDs uh, re- resolutions for disapproval of these sales, and whether it gets shut down in co- Congress or it gets shut down by the president's veto, they don't work. And so I don't believe weapon sales are giving the U.S. leverage, I think the opposite is true. I think when the U.S. starts these sales, uh, a country like the UAE has leverage over the United States.
0: Um, We mentioned in the opening about the the, um, the Abrams Accords. How important is the Abrams Accords, or was this just basically smoke and mirrors, paid for play, diplomacy?
1: Reid, I'll start with you. I mean, I think it was, it's, it's, the Abrams Accords are an example for why the United States continues to support UAE for the wrong reasons. Um, And um, what happened was that we saw that the pro-Israel lobby um, stepped in to um, uh, celebrate uh, this uh, agreement between UAE and Israel. The agreement was came with a price that um, the pro-Israel lobby in the US, APAC and other groups would um, give the United Arab Emirates additional support or, or protections here in the US. It's like a, a blank check for more abusive uh, policies. Uh, there were some conversations before that that um, if the UAE were to enter the uh, Abrams um, Accords or the, the treaties, that they would receive more U.S. weapons um, in response, that they will get an, like F-22s in response, that they're going to get F-18s in response. Um, this is awful. It's just an awful example of how um, regional politics uh, and what Israel wants in the region uh, ends up directing the United States policy in the region. So this is also a part of the problem here like whether it's the United Arab Emirates employing their own lobbyist firms in DC and they spend millions of dollars on uh, their lobbying um, firms pressuring the US government and manipulating our foreign policy. They also now have an alliance with the pro-Israel lobby DC that is also pushing uh, to um, whitewash the crimes of UAE and make it look better. Um, it is really a part of the problem. It is a part of the problem that um, we have these special interest groups uh, who are directly paid by UAE or uh, who are politically motivated by the pro-Israel lobby, who now are, um, uh, you know, whitewashing and promoting the this image of the United Arab Emirates being an important ally. What happened after the Abrams Accord? Nothing happened. Is there peace in the region? Uh, Is the Israeli apartheid uh, less uh, painful to Palestinians? Is there a better arrangement uh, between Palestinians and any any of their neighbors, between Palestinians and Israelis? Nothing happened. It's literally just a publicity stunt, uh, political signaling for this regrouping in the region. Uh, that uh, is not really affecting any of the United States' stated policies or interests. It's not bringing about any change. You know, like some people talk about what what happened between Israel and UAE as a peace treaty, as if UAE and Israel were at at war or something, uh, and then the U.S. helped them to come to peace. That was never the case. Um, I think that it it was an overblown um, uh, publicity stunt that came with a heavy price. The heavy price is we're not going to criticize the UAE's uh, crimes. The heavy price is that we're going to give the UAE more weapons and more political support. And it, it's not a good deal. Right. Jordan, do you
2: agree with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely do. I think when we go to like, talk about some of the more recent weapon sales that the U.S. is giving to the UAE that Israel is supporting, Israel also knows that at a certain point, that means U.S. has to give Israel even more. Because the U.S. has kind of this blanket commitment to make sure Israel has the strongest military, so Israel knows what it's getting itself into, and the Trump administration, who who quote unquote like fostered these accords, Trump I, they were coming out saying they solved the Middle East peace. Like it, it was, I, I think it's exactly right. It, it's a publicity side, That it's no more. It's a publicity stunt by all parties. Very good. Uh, I got two last questions
0: here. One uh, real quickly uh, is do do you guys think that the growing UAE-China relationship has had an impact on the strategic thinking in regards to U.S. Emirati relations,
1: right? Um, I can't really speak to that. Like, I'm not an expert on what's going on with, uh, between UAE and, uh, and China. Uh, I, I know that the UAE has uh, many different relationships with different countries around the world uh, as reliant uh, on the us as um you know like say egypt or 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 jordan Um, but uh, i'm not very familiar with the uae relationships with china
2: okay jordan can you tackle that yeah i mean so the this administration has really kind of doubled down on this we're gonna balance china kind of Kind of thing, and so I I hear the argument. The problem is the U.S. relationship with UAE has been very closely connected for a lot longer than the U.S. cared about China, right? I mean, for from 2001 to 2016, the U.S. didn't really care much about China. It was in the they they were more concerned about policy in the Middle East, and so you would have see you would assume you would see a difference, right? If that's what the cause was, but I, I don't think so. I
0: don't think so. Okay. Um, final question: uh, Where does the relationship go from here? Has there been enough strain put on it? Is there enough evidence globally of human rights abuses, uh, acts of aggression, in you know regionally and even further out? Uh, the 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 money laundering, the the, the corruption, et cetera. Is there enough strain to at least call the attention to the relationship and where does the relationship go with from here? Jordan, we'll start with you.
2: Uh, I, I mean, I I think it's very deeply tied in with the US weapon sales relationship across the world. So I think. Uh, Is unfortunate- that the, let me just jump in.
0: Is that the baseline in your mind? Is that everything stems from F
2: 35s, UAVs, and ordnance? Well, I, I think. It is, n- no, but I do think it is a big thing in our partnerships in the Middle East. I, I think a lot of these countries work with the U.S. because the U.S. ostensibly is giving them a military. And I don't think the U.S. is gonna stop doing that because no matter what the Biden administration says, we haven't left the Middle East. And again, I, I don't. it doesn't seem like we made a really significant departure. So I, I unfortunately, and, and there are things that can change it right i, I right. think but whether it's kind of legally or through new legislation that does put restrictions on it I, I think it is possible to stop it but i'm pessimistic at least for the short term
0: Reed, do you agree
1: yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to change by itself. Like the United States government is not going to hold the United States government accountable. Uh, I think there are uh, three things that can can change it. Uh, the first one is, and many of our groups are, are involved in this. The first one is implementing existing U.S. laws and policies, because we do have very good laws and policies on the books that are not implemented, and the UAE uh, should not be receiving uh, weapons from the United States, because it is an abusive government that is using this, these weapons for um, to commit uh, human rights violations and war crimes around the region. Number two is introducing new legislation, uh, as Jordan said, Like there are two or three pieces of legislation floating around the Senate and House uh, for this Congress to improve our uh, systems of accountability, to center human rights. Uh, in any arms transfer uh, around the region and these are also important and the third thing is what the new york center is doing now which is lawsuits uh actually suing uh our own government for failing to abide by its own policies and by own uh, by our own laws uh and uh, i think uh, that is extremely important it's very very effective to uh, to to push uh, for this impact uh, litigation Uh, because it's time to tell our government here it's not okay to continue business as usual. It is time to rethink our engagement with the uh, Middle East and North Africa in general, with UAE in particular. Very good.
0: Uh, Redraw our friends at DAWN, thank you as always. Uh, Jordan Cohen, our friends at Cato, again, thank you. As always, really appreciate your insight into this. Uh, I do wanna give a uh, special shout out to Lauren Maltese, our Associate Director for External Affairs who put this entire program together. I also wanna shout out to Valentina Doran who continuously makes me look smarter than I actually am. Uh, I also wanna, uh, also you've seen uh, an additional member of our team here at the center on the camera uh our newly elected uh secretary of the new york center for foreign policy affairs rachel rudolph rachel as always it's great to see you ma'am thanks for joining us as part of this discussion uh you can download this uh at any time uh from our website www.nycfpa.org you can also catch it on our social media feeds on twitter facebook and youtube and LinkedIn. I can't forget LinkedIn. Uh, you can uh, also get the latest on our events and our continuing webinar series. We're having our first luncheon series kind of tied into this uh basically talking about the the growing arms race that's happening in the middle east uh that will be happening at the uh end of march early april we'll have details of that on our website but as always on behalf of the board of directors the staff the team and everybody at the new york center for foreign policy affairs i'm justin russell thanks for joining us and we hope to see you at our new event or our next events Coming up soon. Take care. For more information on the subject you just heard about or any of our articles, reports, or events, log on to nycfpa.org. Also, please consider subscribing to Message Traffic on your favorite podcast service like Apple, Google, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. You can also follow us on social media by searching for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For questions regarding the center, or just to let us know what you were thinking, you can email us at info at nycfpa.org. On behalf of the board and staff of the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs. Thank you for listening.